If you enjoyed today's podcast, please be sure to share us and subscribe so you don't miss our next show. We'd love to talk with you again. Following last week's Republican primary debates, the three challengers to Joe Biden in the Democratic primaries got together to talk about the Republican rivals and their opponent in the White House. What Democratic primary, you might say? Exactly. You see, despite appearances, there is a Democratic primary going on as well but it has been hushed and undermined by the President and the Democratic National Convention. Joe Biden and the DNC have been working diligently to undermine the very process itself and accusations of this cycle being a coronation rather than a competition are well supported. To begin with, the President and the DNC decided that instead of New Hampshire continuing its 100-year tradition of being the nation's first presidential primary, that South Carolina should be the first this cycle. Why the change? Well, South Carolina has been good to Joe Biden in the past. New Hampshire is not. In the 2020 primaries, the Granite State chose Bernie Sanders over Joe Biden by a large margin. They chose a lot of people over Joe Biden, actually. Sanders took 25.6% and earned nine delegates. Pete Buttigieg earned 24.3% and nine delegates. We aren't done, though. Amy Klobuchar was third with 19.7% and earned six delegates. Elizabeth Warren also beat Joe Biden with 9.2%, but earned no delegates. Then came Biden, dragging himself across the finish line with 8.4% and no delegates, just edging out other. Why are delegates dispersed like this? Every state has its own rules for how they conduct their primaries, and each party has its own rules on how they do business within that framework. New Hampshire's primary has two distinctions. First, it runs a semi-closed primary. This is important. In a state like Florida, with its closed primaries, only card-carrying members of a party can vote in the primary for that party. In an open primary state, like South Carolina, anybody can vote in the primary. The previous ensures the party can maintain control of access and thus influence in their selection process. The latter opens the door for outsiders to be involved and potentially alter the outcomes for a rival party at the beginning of the process well before the general. Opinions differ on which is proper. Second. New Hampshire awards its delegates proportionally by percentage of the vote. This is a party rule, not the states, and each party makes their own rules in this regard. For Democrats, all states award their delegates proportionally. The Republicans allow each state's party leadership to determine the method for awarding delegates. Some GOP primaries are proportional. New Hampshire is proportional for the Republicans as well. Some are winner-take-all, like Florida, self-explanatory. Some are what's called hybrid, where the state has a mixture of winner-take-all and proportional rules. For example, the state may award delegates in a winner-take-all manner, but by districts, not the state at large. New Hampshire is often touted as the first primary in the race, and this is true. But it creates the impression that it's the first decision in the race. It isn't. Iowa is the first actual vote, but that is a caucus, not a primary. So with that distinction, New Hampshire can say that. A caucus and a primary are run differently. In a caucus, people vote in person, out in the open, at a party meeting, by raising their hands or coalescing in groups to be counted. In a primary, they cast ballots like a general election. The different types lend themselves to different dynamics, and some states have both, with candidates choosing in which type of event they want to participate. For example, Nevada has both a caucus and a primary for the Republicans. The candidates have chosen, and while Nikki Haley will be participating in the primary on February 6th, other GOP candidates will battle in the caucus on the 8th. There is strategy involved, but I will delve into that minutiae in a later show. Back to New Hampshire and the grift. 
Joe Biden got his clock cleaned in the last election in New Hampshire. Is that the reason the DNC, at the urging of Joe Biden, decided to change the Democratic primary schedule, moving South Carolina up to first place? DNC Chair Jamie Harrison said, This calendar does what is long overdue. It puts black voters at the front of the process in South Carolina, it keeps Nevada, where Latinos have been building power, and it adds Michigan, the heartland where unions built the middle class of this nation, and Georgia, the forefront of the New South. The Democratic Party looks like America. Well, Biden did well in South Carolina in 2020, earning 48.7% and 39 delegates compared to Sanders' 19.8% and 15. He did not do well in Nevada. Sanders scored big there, 40.5% and 24 delegates, to Biden's second place, 18.9% and 9 Michigan voted last cycle on March 10th and delivered 52.9% and 73 delegates for Biden, 36.3% and 52 for Sanders. This cycle, Michigan will vote February 27th. Last time, Georgia voted way down the calendar on June 9th, with a crushing 84.9% and all 105 of the state's delegates going to Biden. This time, Georgians will vote on March 12th. Are you starting to see the same thing I am? The president, with co-conspirators at the DNC, are rearranging dates and twisting the schedule to front-load the primaries with known pro-Biden states with large delegate counts. It's right out in the open and undeniable. For their part, the Democratic Party has always been a bit more top-down in its process with their use of superdelegates, ones who can vote any way they want, regardless of balloting, but this schedule stacking is egregious. So the leadership told three states, Iowa, that voted on February 3rd last cycle, New Hampshire, that voted on February 11th, and Nevada, that voted on February 22nd, to toe the line and get behind South Carolina next year. Iowa had also not chosen Biden last cycle, and it seems to have too many white people for the DNC's taste as well, so you're out of there. Iowa and Nevada gave in, but New Hampshire did not. You see, New Hampshire has actually ensconced their position as first in the nation into their state laws, and they refused. DNC may strip the state of its delegates as a result, and Joe Biden didn't even register to be on the ballot. It seemed the die was cast, but then came Dean Phillips. Dean Phillips, the Minnesota representative to the United States House of Representatives, threw his hat in the ring in October and did register to be on the New Hampshire ballot. Now, at first this may seem to be a non-issue. New Hampshire only has 23 delegates up for grabs if they stayed in play, and there are all the indications they will be stripped anyway, so who cares? Well, imagine the optics of Phillips scoring high on the first primary even if there are no delegates in play. Even if the DNC rejects the primary, it will still be first. When Robert F. Kennedy Jr. was still running as a Democrat, maybe it might be a problem, but he is now running as an independent, so his primary is over. He is no longer a direct rival in the Democratic primary. He's effectively running in the general election as himself now. The remaining candidate, Marianne Williamson, a perennial also ran in the party, is not really a threat. Phillips, however, came out of nowhere and generated a mild shockwave. He's young, he's dynamic, and gave Biden his due for past performance while reminding everyone that those deeds are very much in the past and the outlook for the rapidly declining incumbent is unfavorable, something polling strongly supports. As far back as August, an Associated Press poll showed 69% of Democrats believed him too old to be effective for another four years. That hasn't improved in subsequent polls. If Phillips were to do well in New Hampshire, it sets the tone for the primary, something Biden and the DMC work very hard to skew in the incumbent's favor. Phillips' announcement sent the co-conspirators scrambling to put together a write-in campaign to get voters to put Biden on the ballot he so recently dismissed. This looks very bad for both the Biden campaign and the Democratic National Committee. 
They have shaken off their surprise, though, and resumed their machinations to ensure Sleepy Joe can meander into the general election unchallenged to face whoever finally earns the Republican nomination. It seems to be lost on the DNC that Biden polls unconvincingly against the two leading candidates, Trump and Haley, as the Democrats prop him up like weekend at Bernie's. He's the guy, for better or for worse, and those that dare stand in the way of this potential crushing defeat will be cheated out of that fair contest. Strong language, I know, but recall what has happened so far and follow along as I detail what they have done since that. Florida was the first chess move. The Florida Democratic Party Executive Committee voted October 29th to only include President Biden on the primary ballot. This occurred two days after Phillips announced his candidacy. Interesting. The party officials in the state plead innocence, claiming the party first heard from the campaign on November 22nd. The Phillips campaign has provided copies of two letters he said the campaign sent to Florida Democratic Party Chair Nikki Freed on November 7th, however, so that doesn't check out. Why the rush, Florida? Okay, fine. I'll take you at your word. Dean missed the cut, and your early decision had absolutely nothing to do with potential spoilers entering the race. Why is Marianne Williamson not on the ballot? She's been in the race since March, and recent polls have her at 12% against Biden's 74%. Numbers very similar to Nikki Haley's 16% versus Trump's 64%, but while Haley's performance gets mentioned in the press, Williamson's does not. Phillips was at 4% in that poll. How did you forget her? Did you forget her, or did you cheat her out of her chance to compete with Joe Biden? At best, that makes you incompetent as an organization, at worst, corrupt. You see, by only putting Biden on the ballot by Florida state law, the presidential primary will not happen at all, and all 219 delegates will be automatically awarded to Biden. Phillips has cried foul, saying unilaterally taking away the right of rank-and-file Democrats, including a disproportionate number of black voters demanding a more affordable America, is reprehensible. He continued, If Joe Biden is the best candidate to defeat Donald Trump and lead us to a safer, more affordable future, let him compete for that privilege without his supporters suppressing and disenfranchising millions of voters. Phillips has filed implementation challenges to the three states involved. Three? Yes, three. You see, Florida isn't the only state to do this trick. North Carolina and Tennessee similarly only put Biden on their primary ballots. Is it starting to look increasingly like the fix is in? You decide. At any rate, if you were unaware that there were any alternatives on the Democrat side, you could be forgiven for that. It's not exactly being shouted from the mountaintops. There are, though. And directly after the fourth Republican primary debate, candidates Dean Phillips, Marianne Williamson, and Jank Uger came together on Uger's YouTube channel, The Young Turks, to discuss the debate and contrast their stances on the issues at hand. I was really excited to finally hear these folks talk, and it was a very good vibe in my opinion. I've cut out as much filler as possible, but there's still a lot here, and I'm going to just take a back seat for the most part and let the candidates have the floor, a floor so far denied them. And we want to point out that we did invite President Joe Biden, but as has unfortunately been the trend, he and the Democratic establishment seem to prefer that this primary be silent if it has to occur at all. But I don't think that silence is good for a democracy, so we've decided to give our microphone to the candidates. Now let's welcome those candidates. Marion Williamson is an American author, and speaker. Welcome, Marianne. Thank you. Thank you. Wonderful to be here. Good to be speaking with you once again. Uh, Representative Gene Phillips is a businessman who has represented Minnesota's third congressional district since 2019. Welcome. Good evening, everybody. Good to have you here. Jenk Uger is a political commentator, host of The Young Turks, and author. Jenk, it is good to meet you for the first time ever. All right. Good to be here. 
I'm glad Jenk had the platform and was able to and gracious enough to host the discussion that it looks like Biden and the DNC seriously do not want to have. They started with a very important issue of the complete lack of debates on the Democratic side of the race. We just had the fourth Republican debate. There will likely be more. And yet on the Democratic side, no debates. Is that a big loss for democracy? Is it a loss for the Democratic Party? Marianne, I want to start with you. What do you think about this? It's a big loss, and we have something worse going on now than just the fact that we don't have debates. We have the fact that in Florida, and possibly in some other states as well, there's some, as I'm sure Jen and Dean are aware, there's some funny stuff going on in uh, Tennessee and in North Carolina. Uh, I'm thinking of it now as ballot gate. So we have a bigger problem than even the fact that they're not having debates. And that's that there is a concerted effort by Democratic parties around the country to make sure that um, Joe Biden is basically the only person running even to the point of excluding us from the balance. And that's a very big deal. And yes, it's a threat to our democracy. Representative? And for me, well, my goodness, how can you have the two leading candidates right now, which is gonna change by the way, hopefully on both sides of the aisle, literally not agreeing to debate. It's just absurd. Donald Trump not showing up for a GOP debate. Uh, it is not, there's not even an incumbent GOP president right now. And I think it's more than anything sad and a sad commentary on the Democratic Party and sadly on Joe Biden, uh, that he would, before he even knew who might be running in this primary, uh, would say there would be no debates. And as a Democrat, a proud one, I know I'm with other ones here on this, uh, this Zoom tonight, uh, if debate dies, democracy dies. It's as simple as that. It's appalling. Uh, but I'm glad to be with all of you. And we're going to show people not just how to debate, but how to do it respectfully uh, and in a way that I think America is demanding. Nick, what do you think? Yeah, first uh, I, I want to say something about Marianne indeed. Uh, Marianne Williamson has been in this race longer than anybody. Showed tremendous courage by getting in from the beginning. Uh, and and then Dean coming in at, uh, when he did was also huge. It brought more attention to the weakness of Joe Biden. And he did it uh, while taking on huge parts of the Democratic establishment that were very unhappy for him doing that. I think it showed tremendous courage on both of their parts and I want to commend them for that. Uh, now, unfortunately for Joe Biden, we haven't seen that kind of courage. Uh, I guess he's worried about us because it's not just that he doesn't debate us. Um, and come on, I mean, we see his state. I'm sorry, but he can't, he couldn't. And if you're worried that he can't withstand a debate with us, how's he going to do against Donald Trump? But more importantly, as Marianne pointed out, now Florida's just canceled their election. Look, we all got into this race because we're worried to death that Donald Trump is going to end democracy as we know it. And he and now is bragging about wanting to be a dictator. So uh, the Democratic Party ending elections in the primaries is an epic disaster. It's a disaster for the Democratic voters. It's a disaster for the process and a disaster for our prospects in the general election. How are you gonna make the case that Donald Trump is endangering democracy when you're canceling elections across the country. Now North Carolina and Tennessee has taken all three of us off the ballot as well. It's outrageous, it's indefensible, and it's not what the Democratic Party should stand for. And I'd like to remind our audience, uh, as we often have, that when you don't have contested vigorous primaries, sure, maybe you protect the incumbent at least through the primary process, but you don't have a period of driving news, of getting people fired up, getting people talking about politics in these different states, and that almost certainly has lingering effects for the general election. Um, but I want to jump onto something that Representative Phillips uh, mentioned there, that you not only have Biden opting out of the debates, but as uh, Representative Phillips mentioned, uh, Trump also isn't getting involved. 
So as we've been saying, Joe Biden doesn't want to have debates, doesn't want in many of these states to have a primary at all, despite saying that he got into this race to stop Donald Trump. He's not taking the opportunity to get the cameras on him, talk about Trump and all of that. And Trump doesn't feel like he has to show up. But uh, I want to start with you, Representative Phillips, first on this. Um, as of right now, Biden is still leading and uh, you know Trump is also leading. So is this a problem of the candidates or is this a problem of the electorate that we don't seem to have high enough standards for our candidates that we expect that they should at least try to sell them, sell, sell us on them? Actually, I think this is a problem of two parties. And I think it's becoming self-evident to those of us here on the Zoom tonight. But I don't think it's evident enough yet to the country uh, that they're being played uh, by a duopoly that is literally suffocating democracy. Uh, sadly, I thought it was only a disease of the right, uh, as I know Marianne has discovered earlier than I and Bernie Sanders before us. Uh, it's actually a disease that's afflicting the left as well. And I think we have to expose it. Uh, look forward to working together to do so. Uh, I've discovered also that the electorate is desperate. They're hungry, starving for debate. Uh, but they're not going to get it from the two parties. The two parties are actually working against it. And look at from my perspective, you know, when 70-some percent of the country wants neither Joe Biden nor Donald Trump to be the two nominees, and only one member of Congress out of 535 people, which is me, is willing to say that quiet part out loud, that's all that you need to know about the disconnect between the electorate and the representatives. Uh, we have a perverse incentive system. It is corrupt. I'm finding more out by the day. Uh, and that's why I'm glad we're doing this, and I think we should all work together. Uh, and it's not just Democrats. The leading candidates should debate, period. It should be a basic expectation, a qualification to even enter the presidential stage, period. And it's enough of the nonsense. It doesn't matter your politics. It's a principle. The polling supports his statements. And speaking for myself, I completely agree that we should expect candidates to compete for our votes. I don't think I'm among a minority in that feeling, but maybe I'm wrong. Looking at Trump's base, there is a definite cult of personality there. Many of them have drank the Kool-Aid and would follow him into hell, or prison as may be the case. Fair enough, they made their choice and will ride this bomb all the way down, hooting and hollering just like Slim Pickens and Dr. Strangelove. On the Democrat side, however, while there is a core base supporting Biden, their demeanor looks decidedly more unenthusiastic, resigned to their fate, a fate Biden and the DNC seem dead set on. It makes watching them be dragged along to potential failure while they are fully awake less palatable. And it, it certainly seems like something that had always been a part of the tradition. And we know, you know, based on recent polling, 68% say inside the Democratic Party they want televised debates. Jake, I want to go to you next. Uh, what do you think about this? Yeah. So, look, obviously we should debate. Uh, I think that, uh, and if we do, Dean is right, Marianne is right, uh, what we would uh, do is talk about how terrible Trump is, for example. Meanwhile, Joe Biden is hiding. Look, whether you're debating us or you're out there on the stump making the case, you've got to show up if you're going to be the candidate. And he hasn't even showed up. That's why his favorability is at 37. His unfavorability is at 59. He's 22 points underwater. He's 13 points lower than a generic Democrat, which the three of us or any other Democrat would fill that slot. 13 points lower. He's losing to Donald Trump, who's a deeply unpopular politician, who says he wants to be dictated. He's losing to Trump in the last poll by eight points. And a Democratic candidate must win by five in order to win the Electoral College. Then there's that number again, Joe Biden down by 13. And when you're down by 13, you need to be in front of every camera fighting like hell to come back. Does it look like Joe Biden's trying to make a comeback? 
No, he's constantly taking a nap in a cave somewhere, in a bunker. And what does he do? He sends out his minions to stop elections in the primaries, stop debates, stop any discussion. Well, then we're not getting our message out. We as Democrats, you should be joining us in fighting Trump and, and fighting like hell to represent Democratic voters. Do you see any of that energy and gumption from Joe Biden? Honestly, he barely can finish sentences. Look, guys, if you could, I don't mind if people are angry with me. Uh, for saying things that are obviously true. You ask anyone in your private life, what do you think of Joe Biden? Every single one of them is gonna say he's too old. But yet, the Democratic Party is supporting this, uh, this leader who's acting in authoritarian ways, is saying, we're okay with losing democracy. We're okay with losing this election to Donald Trump, as long as we don't offend Joe Biden. Well, the three of us don't agree, and I think that Joe Biden needs to actually make his case to the American people, and he hasn't even done that against us or Trump. I am no supporter of Joe Biden, but Jenk is correct. He needs to make his case to interview for four more years, first to his party and then to the American people at large. He's screwing these other candidates, denying them a forum to discuss the important issues from a Democrat viewpoint. But he's also screwing himself because even if he can ignore them and cruise to a nomination, whoever faces off against him in the general must be debated. He will walk into a general election overconfident, out of shape, and he will lose. He won't necessarily lose because the other candidate is the better choice, but because he is unprepared. The Democrats say they want to stop Trump. Okay, act like it. If they don't change course fast and start getting a strong candidate ready, whoever that is, this is going to be Rocky Three. Marion, I know you've been very critical of the lack of debates and what they're doing at the primaries. You started off talking about that. Um, do, do, is this just fear from Biden? Is it apathy? Is it entitlement? Is it disrespect to the democratic process? Why have we uh, ended up with the, the sort of Democratic primary, or lack thereof, that, that there is right now? First of all, it's exactly what Jenks said. It's that the president doesn't feel he needs to say anything because he knows that he has a machine that's taking care of business for him. And that's a problem. And that is the DNC and how the whole party operates uh, in state after state after state, making sure we're not on the ballots, making sure that we're not debating the president, et cetera. And everything that uh, Jenks said was true. We need to be out there talking about our counter narrative to the Republicans. We need to talk about what the, Rep the Democrats stand for in 2020. For. What does Biden say other than finish the job? But there's something else as well, and that's a sort of disturbing psychological characteristic of too many Democratic voters. You know, we've been trained to keep our political conversations so shallow that even in the Democratic Party, we sort of farm out our critical thinking. There's this parroting of these pale, stale uh, platitudes. We are going to vote for uh, Joe Biden. He won before, therefore he'll win again. Which to me is like saying to an actor, you won the Oscar last year, so surely you'll win it this year. When it's a different movie this year. So I, I, I find it disturbing that so many Democrats who consider themselves so concerned about democracy are, are treating Dean and Jenk and myself like we're doing something wrong. You know, I, I'm old enough to remember uh, when Eugene McCarthy uh, primaried Lyndon Johnson and when Bobby Kennedy Sr. Uh, primaried Lyndon Johnson. There's, no, there's nothing in the Constitution that gives some special assignation to incumbency. And when those men ran against uh, 
uh, Lyndon Johnson, and it was very important that they did because that helped end the Vietnam War. Nobody thought it was weird. We just thought it was democracy. So Democratic voters and the fact that they're willing to go along with this craziness from the DNC, I hope more of them will wake up and remember that there's nothing in the Constitution or even in our traditions, contrary to what they would have you believe, that would indicate that it's the DNC that should be making this decision. Rather, it is the people and the people alone who should be making this decision. And if they did and they really heard Jake and really heard Dean and heard me in the debates, I think that Joe Biden would have some serious contenders, and I think that that's what he's really afraid of. These candidates have been cast as heretics within the party, and the unfair and undermining treatment they have received is stark and unapologetic. The discussion of PACs, political action committees, came up in the Republican debate, and there is certainly a vigorous battle among those candidates to sell themselves and their potential influence to the highest bidder better than their opponents. This is not exclusively a Republican thing, but these folks had some opinions on campaign funding. Uh, Jake, I want to start with you first. Um, we've been talking a lot about the Democratic status quo, the Democratic establishment, which is not just about an approach to primaries. It's also about the approach to corporations, campaign finance, corporate PACs. What do you think about this? How would it in is it influencing your candidacy and would it influence your presidency? Yeah. So I believe none of us are taking corporate PAC money, and, uh, and that is a giant part of the corruption in this system. So I think probably Representative Phillips can uh, talk to how much call time you have to do to just get reelected into Congress and get elected the first time. Everybody's constantly pleading uh, with rich folks, corporations, etc., super PACs, uh, dark PACs, uh, dark money PACs for money. This is insane. This is legalized bribery. So. You know, I, the one thing, and Vivek Ramaswamy is unbearable, but the one thing that he was right about is, yes, it's corruption when you work in government and then you go and work for one of the giant corporations that you were helping when you were in government, as Nikki Haley did with Boeing, and you funnel money to them when you're in government, and then you get the rewards, you get millions of dollars from them when you leave government, and then you go back into government and you funnel them our money, though. You're not funneling them their money, you're funneling uh, our money to them, right? And so, and to the tune of billions, and sometimes with the defense contractors and the pharmaceutical companies, trillions of dollars. So, and, and I wish the Democratic Party was immune from this, but it isn't. And so the Democratic uh, establishment takes tons of corporate PAC money. I believe Joe Biden has taken about $150 million from dark money PACs. So who, do we think that you take $150 million and that you're not affected by that at all? That you're like, oh, no, somebody gave me all that money, and that's the source of my power. That's how I can say, hey, I'm, I'm more electable because I have so much more money. But that doesn't affect you? That you're not going to do something to try to get that money? No, I'm sorry, but I don't believe that. So, yes, uh, Mitch McConnell's taken a about a billion dollars in uh, donations through from rich people and corporations throughout his career, and that is obviously corrupt, and any Democrat will tell you that's corrupt. But Nancy Pelosi has also taken a billion dollars from uh, donors. And so this is systemic. It isn't that Mitch McConnell or Nancy Pelosi are evil, although with Mitch McConnell there is a good case to be made. Uh, but it is the system that is wrong. And so that's what we've got to attack. And, un and, and uh, unfortunately, most of the politicians and most of the media don't address this at all. There is so much money pouring into politics, and politicians are beholden to their patrons. Nikki Haley is saying some things I agree with, and she is arguably the most sane person on that stage, along with Chris Christie, but her recent darling status among huge Wall Street bankers concerns me greatly, and it should concern you too if she wins the nomination and defeats Biden in the general. 
I hope you tuned in for my debate coverage, but if not, as Jenk mentioned, Vivek Ramaswamy is unbearable, but not off the mark, calling out the money and corruption in politics. It's real, it's pervasive, and it gives these donors unfair influence over elected officials to our detriment. Well, we all know that money in politics is the cancer that underlies all the other cancers. We have to become as intentional about overturning Citizens United as some Americans were intentional about overturning uh, Roe v. Wade for many years. Um, we also, ultimately, we need a constitutional amendment that will establish public funding for federal campaigns. Um, all the revol revolving door issues that Cenk uh, talked about are absolutely correct. Um, but even if it weren't for that money, just the fact that if you look at the cost of getting on these ballots alone, which is hundreds of thousands of dollars, so even that's in addition to all the shenanigans that they're doing now, the system is rigged so that no one who doesn't either have a lot of money or access to a lot of money it has any chance of getting near the pinnacles of power. So then the American people wonder why our legislators aren't passing laws that actually serve the people. That's because in the vast majority of the cases, they're not from what we think of as the, 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 the constellation of average Americans who are living through average American things. Citizens United was a 2010 Supreme Court decision where a conservative nonprofit group called Citizens United challenged campaign finance rules after the FEC stopped it from promoting and airing a film criticizing presidential candidate Hillary Clinton too close to the presidential primaries. A 5-4 majority of the Supreme Court sided with Citizens United, ruling that corporations and other outside groups can spend unlimited money on elections. I'll say that last part again and let it stew in your brain for a moment. Corporations and other outside groups can spend unlimited money on elections. Unlimited money. Corporations. How far do you think your $10 will go against Jan Coombs' $5 million? Who's that? Jan Coom is a Ukrainian-American billionaire and co-founder of WhatsApp. He donated that money to the Stand for America PAC that backs Nikki Haley. Now, are pro-Ukraine donors backing her because she's hawkish on support for Ukraine? Or is she hawkish on Ukraine because pro-Ukraine donors are backing her? It's a fair question. Also, Dean, I, I, I don't mean to be putting you on the spot here. I really don't. This is an honest question. But Jinx said that you weren't, and what about, what is Steve Schmidt doing, and what is the PAC situation with you? I do think it's, uh, it's a reasonable question. Oh, happy to address that. Um, let, me, let me start with my overarching comment on campaign finance reform, because it, it is the cancer of all cancers. And let me, Jank, you asked the question about call time in Congress. 10,000 hours per week collectively is what members of Congress spend raising money. And I'm going to tell you the dirty little secret. Not only does all that money uh, buy access and influence, of course it does. But what it really is, is so troubling is that when you spend all your time with people who have money, the well-to-do and the well-connected, by definition, you're mm -hmm. not spending time with the broad cross-section of Americans that are struggling. I watched that debate tonight. I was astounded that they barely talked about affordability. They barely talked about health care. They barely talked about housing. They barely talked about education. And that's because members of Congress and all the political class right now are spending so much of their time with the wealthy and the well-connected that they have completely lost touch with what's going on in this country. Are we surprised that we have Trumpism? We shouldn't be. And I'm the only member of Congress, the only one out of 535, that takes no PAC money of any kind, no lobbyist money. I don't take member money, I don't give it, and I don't have a leadership PAC. I think that's how the whole game should be played. I raise enough money for my congressional races 
from individual donors to make it work. But that's the system. And by the way, until the rules can change, people are going to have to play by them. As for Steve Schmidt, he helped me start my campaign because you know why? I couldn't find a single Democratic consultant to work on my campaign when I launched because they were all going to be blackballed by the establishment. Steve Schmidt was the only person who is so committed to defeating Donald Trump, he said, I'll help you get there. He volunteered to do it, left my campaign right after I launched. He's doing his own thing, I think, very similar to the Lincoln Project, to simply defeat Donald Trump. And I think that's his mission once again. He said in 2020, Biden was the only one that could do it. In 2024, he thinks I'm the one to do it. And that's, uh, I'm thrilled that he's got that faith in me. I believe I can too, but that's the dirty little secret. It is so appalling and so abhorrent. Uh, and that's what people should know. 10,000 hours per week raising money. I can't find someone to go to dinner with in Washington on a Wednesday night because everybody's going to pack dinners, getting their white envelopes with the $5,000 two, three times a night. That's the truth. Drake scoop from inside the machine. That these things go on is no secret. Why don't more people talk about it? He, I think, correctly points out Trumpism. Indeed, while I may not agree with his supporters that he is the answer to our problems, I do share their legitimate concern about many of these issues. Trumpism is very much blowback from years of dissatisfaction of a large segment of America regarding the action and or inaction of the federal government. They are frustrated and angry and fairly so. The unenthusiastic but mostly steady support for Biden is blowback from Trump. Democrats are so scared of Trump, again, fairly so, that they are terrified to make even the slightest tweak. I am of the opinion that they need to put their support behind a fresh candidate, something these candidates, and if polling is to be believed, the rank-and-file members of the party and the country at large agree with. Next, we move on to Israel and American involvement in that conflict. Marianne Williamson led with the comments. Sorry for my keyboard clicking in the background. With you, Marianne, uh, what should U.S. involvement be in this conflict? What should the government be doing right now? What would you do, uh, assuming the conflict is still uh, raging, were you to become president? I don't have a problem with the United States supporting Israel. The issue is this bombing of Gaza. I don't even think it's supporting Israel. I think the United States should have an equal commitment to the safety and the security and the human rights of both people. What's, we all understand why Israel is furious. And we also might understand, you know, Ron, Ron DeSantis has such an incredibly simplistic view of what's going on there. He says, we need to help Israel win, have a victory so this could never happen again. What does he call a victory? Even if they are to get rid of all of those, all of the, of the tunnels, which I certainly understand the urge to get rid of the tunnels, but their effort to do so is creating so much more hate. It is creating so much more Hamas. You know, Hamas is not just an illimited group of people, it's also a philosophy. So the United States should have for decades now been being far more truthful. Um, I'm sorry, the settlements are illegal. The West Bank occupation is illegal. The siege of Gaza was wrong. Uh, no justice, no peace. There was never a military solution to the situation. The only solution is peace and justice for both people. I, I can see this only as a two-state solution at this point. And similarly, right now, there is no military solution. And the more time goes on, the more we, we still aren't hearing from Israel, what's the game plan here? So that the worst accusations against it are becoming harder and harder, uh, harder and harder to, to deflect or to disagree with. So the United States should be saying complete ceasefire, 
release of the hostages, and immediately an international consortium to work on plans for a two-state solution. And this has to involve, of course, Bahrain, UAE, Qatar, um, Jordan, Egypt, uh, as well as Western powers, as well as the United States. You know, we're living in a multipolar world now. Uh, there's no one country that goes in and can say what it's going to be anymore. But that's what the United States should stand for. Ceasefire, release of the hostages, two-state solution. And now the killing has got to stop. Representative Phillips, uh, what would your approach be? What should Biden be doing right now? Well, I'm the ranking member of the Middle East Subcommittee on Foreign Affairs. I've been to Jerusalem twice this year. I sat down with the Prime Minister, looked him in the eye, told him exactly what I thought. Had no idea, of course, that October 7th was forthcoming. Uh, been to Riyadh and to Istanbul and Ankara uh, to have conversations with both the Turks uh, and the Saudis. We were so close to getting the Saudis to normalize with Israel. One reason I think the attack occurred on October 7th, by the way, is Iran. Uh, they don't want peace. Hamas doesn't want peace. And I hope Israelis soon choose to pursue a path of peace. You know, at the end of the day, a very well, it's not a simple solution, uh, but it's a simple plan. Uh, release the hostages. Uh, by the way, there are eight Americans sitting in the tunnels right now, held hostages for now two months by a terrorist organization. And any of us who might become president should make that our number one priority. I do believe we made a big mistake uh, with the $6 billion that was uh, not the release of it, but the access to it uh, in exchange for five uh, prisoners uh, from Iran. I think that sends a message to anybody else, including Hamas. You take American prisoners, you can extract billions of dollars. I think the president should be speaking about this every damn morning. He should use every tool available to him, diplomatic tools, pressure with our foreign aid, and yes, special forces if they have a plan to extract Americans. It's the longest Americans have held, been held hostage in this number since the Iranian revolution in 1979. Release the hostages, an immediate ceasefire, replace Israeli troops in Gaza with an international, multinational uh, peacekeeping force to keep the peace for Palestinians and Israelis, not to include Israel and the United States, but Hamas has got to be eliminated. That would also take a multinational task force. And then we have to all collectively make investments in civil society, democracy, infrastructure, and then two things have to happen. Palestinians must be afforded the chance to vote for the first time since 2006. The Palestinian Authority is corrupt. Mahmoud Abbas in his 80s, corrupt. Pay to slay is happening right now. They pay people who would so, be so bold as to kill an Israeli. And Hamas is clearly dedicated to the destruction of Israel and the destruction of Jewish people. It's plain and simple. They've got to go too. And if Israelis and Palestinians finally choose peace, every single nation in the world, friends and foes, Chinese and the U.S. and Russians and everybody else, Gulf states have got to unify behind this. And I'm just going to turn the light back on President Biden. He's been in Washington for 50 years. He was the chairman and ranking member of the Foreign Relations Committee in the Senate, eight years as vice president, three years as president. It's the same cycle of nonsense my entire life. And to think the same people in the same positions doing it the same way are going to achieve success, uh-uh. Netanyahu's got to go. The settlement policy, I agree, is wrong. And Israelis, thank goodness, live in a democracy. Two million Muslims living side by side with safety and security and protection. A multinational country protecting LGBTQ plus rights, women's rights. You know, there are, uh, there are 140 Israelis that live in Gaza, but they're right now held hostage in a tunnel. So this has to end. And I just think it's time for the pro-Palestinian and the pro-Israeli factions around the world to join hands, not take arms, join hands, because humanity is more important than nationality or religion, plain and simple.
Cenk, I want to end the segment by giving you a chance to, to respond to something. Yeah. So th there are actually some things that I disagree with Dean on, but I do want to agree with him that, uh, yes, Biden has been uh, in Washington for 50, maybe even 60 years at this point. And, uh, and when they do that thing about, oh, he's Joe from Scranton. Oh, come on, guys. Come on. He hasn't been to Scranton in five, six decades in terms of living there. Okay, but let's address the issue here. So, look, I agree with Chris Christie uh, that Ron DeSantis never answers the question. And I think that was one of his better moments. But I wildly disagree with Chris Christie uh, when he says we should send in American troops. Okay, first of all, that's nuts. We're not going to go and get into a bigger war in the Middle East. Number two, what do they need it for? It's not like the Palestinians have an ability to fight back against Israel's military. Israel's military is 2,000 times stronger. It's not really a war. It's just utter destruction of Gaza. So uh, what happened on October 7th was horrific. And Israel had the moral high ground there, and I wish that they had gone to a productive solution, which I'm going to offer here at the end. Uh, but look, all the Republicans there, I think, for lack of a better word, are mental. I mean, Ron DeSantis talking about how Joe Biden has kneecapped and hobbled Israel's response. How many more civilians did you want him to kill? So they, there's 15,000 dead in Gaza, and that's and Joe Biden pretty much gave a complete green light to that, certainly for the great majority of the time. Is 15,000 dead civilians not enough for Ron DeSantis? And so how much more of a green light could Joe Biden have given Israel? It's preposterous. So, look, uh, the idea that uh, you're going to get a, a complete, total and complete military victory that DeSantis talked about against Hamas is absurd. When is Hamas going to get up and go, okay, we lost? How? How would we even know? How would we know if the Palestinians have turned on Hamas? How would we know if Hamas is lost? We haven't seen Hamas basically since October. So yes, they fire rockets, etc. But they're in the tunnels, and the tunnels appear to be completely unaffected by the bombing, yet Israel continues to drop 2,000-pound bombs. And now Israel has admitted, yes, there are 15,000 dead in Gaza. And so, look, my solution is uh, harsher uh, in regards to restricting our ally if you're going to use our money to kill those civilians, I say no. I would not send $14 billion to Israel to, for more death and destruction. And I would not, I honestly would not send them any more money, period, until they end uh, the occupation. It has to be two states. It's non-negotiable. I don't want my taxpayer dollars going to kill Palestinian civilians and to keep them occupied in an open-air prison for decades. So no deal. Uh, now, if they end the occupation, then fantastic. We love Israel, and we want Israel to be a flourishing, beautiful country that is a strong, democratic ally of America. So finally, the productive solution is, look, if Israel were to now say, you know what, we're going to do a deal with the Palestinian Authority, and they are going to run Gaza. But in order for them to have the moral authority to do that, because at this point, even Palestinians in the West Bank are beginning to see the Palestinian Authority as collaborators with Israel because they're helping to continue to occupy the West Bank. Say we are reaching a peace deal, 1967 borders, and we're doing it not with Hamas, never with Hamas, but with the Palestinian Authority. So Palestinian Authority then can come and take Gaza and control Gaza and drive Hamas out. That actually would be total and complete victory against Hamas, because then the Palestinian Authority would say, we brought you a Palestinian state. And they would have the credibility to be able to do that. And if you want to say, hey, maybe not 1967 borders, take 4% for settlers, etc., 
Okay, we're going to have that conversation. But get to a peace deal immediately, get to a two-state solution immediately, and regain the moral high ground for Israel and for America. We are going to have to take our hey, first place. If I could just say one thing quick. Um, I'm not here to defend Chris Christie, but just facts are facts. The question was whether you would use troops to extract the hostages. Uh, that was my comment. That was Christie's comment. I don't think anyone's proposing sending American boots to the ground, but I do think it's American president's priority and prerogative. Uh, if American hostages are being held and there is a plan to extract them, to then use American troops, not in a ground war in Israel or Gaza, but to extract Americans. That should be our highest priority. By the way, why is it not on every single newspaper cover every day? Why is the president not speaking about it every single day? And I got to tell you all, the truth is, I think it's because they're Israeli Americans. And that's the truth. But nobody knows where they are. And everybody knows that they don't know where they are. The Israelis don't know where they are. My point wasn't that. My point is, we have eight American hostages being held in Gaza by Hamas. And I think this should be a bigger deal to the United States of America. That's all I'm saying. They're Americans. Yeah, and can I just, I got to agree with Dean on that. I think that Israel should have used special forces from the first day to try to rescue the hostages from inside the tunnels. Dropping bombs on civilians and residential buildings, hospitals, etc., doesn't help rescue the hostages at all. We got to get I our people. I certainly agree with that. We got to get our people back, and we've got to show That's the courage to be able to go in those tunnels and extract. Fifty plus years in Washington, and Biden has done what? The situation in Israel is a divisive one. It's a complex situation, and it's easy to get swept up in justified outrage with what the warring parties are doing and the deaths of Israeli and Palestinian civilians. Cooler heads are going to have to look at this objectively and come up with a mutually workable and final solution to this issue. Regarding American hostages, Dean is right. On that issue, we have real skin in the game, and I would be very comfortable with the U.S. doing whatever it takes to get them back and leaving Hamas fighters' heads on pikes in the aftermath. For too long, through multiple administrations, our country has been weak on protecting our citizens abroad, creating a fresh paradigm and enforcing it that if you take Americans hostage, you will not get money for it, we will come for them, and you will lose your life over it if it needs to happen. On the economy, Dean Phillips was given the first chance to share his thoughts. Is there anything else, hard as it is to imagine, that can be done to make home ownership more conceivable? Absolutely. I, I have to tell you all, I'm sure you feel the same way. I mean, considering these are the top four alternatives to the most dangerous man in the history of the United States. And I'm just astounded by their lack of ideation, innovation. It's all nonsense. And the truth of the matter, this is so simple. We live in a very simple economy, supply and demand. We are six and a half million housing units short, which means prices will always be high no matter interest rates. Uh, no matter who becomes president, we need to initiate a seven million unit massive nationwide housing construction initiative. Multifamily, high density units all around the country. We know how to do it. We have to change some zoning laws. We have to reduce some of the red tape. We have to ensure there's capital provision. But until we build more housing units, prices won't go down and availability won't go up. We have 500,000 Americans sleeping in the streets, not just San Francisco and LA and Chicago and New York. I'm here in New Hampshire, Manchester, New Hampshire, across the street, there are veterans sleeping in Veterans Park, for goodness sake. So this is not rocket science. And when, the, when you work in a, live in a market economy, it's really simple. If you create the circumstances by which private developers, in this case, want to build because they can make a profit, it's so simple. And I cannot believe that not one of the GOP candidates on that stage tonight said the most simple thing. 
We should have a national housing initiative, period, end homelessness, ensure that everybody has a home. And yes, interest rates are way too high, and we should make sure that first-time homebuyers and first-generation homebuyers have a chance. I'd also like to see a, a national service program where after high school, if you take a year and join AmeriCorps or Peace Corps, we will seed you with some capital to buy a home because that's how we create wealth in America. I think those are some ideas we should consider, and I'd love to hear from my friends. Okay, let's go to you next. What do, what do you think can be done? Yeah, so first of all, uh, with the Republicans, it is stunning how little they talk about the average American. Almost not at all. They talk about how who they're going to invade, they're going to go after China, they're going to spend special forces into Mexico, different weirdo wars they're going to start, and corporations that they're going to kiss up to, etc. And never talk about the average uh, American. So first off, uh, if I was Joe Biden, let alone uh, any of the other presidents, I would have done $15 minimum wage instantly, immediately. That was their first promise. The bare minimum promise, and they didn't do it. Why? Guys, when you increase the minimum wage, it increases the wages for everyone. That's when everybody flips out in the establishment and goes, oh my God, inflation. No, you need higher wages to keep up with the inflation that already happened. So we've got to stick up with the average guy instead of all the multinational corporations. Lower drug prices. Why can't we negotiate drug prices? That's not capitalism. That's the exact opposite of capitalism. They've totally captured our government. And every politician, Democratic or Republican, that becomes president says, Oh, it's too hard to do in Washington. But they never explain why. Why is it too hard to do the bare minimum in a capitalist free market system of negotiating drug prices? It's because the drug companies have bought all the politicians. They gave them literally billions of dollars in legalized bribes. That is why when if Barack Obama or Donald Trump go to negotiate to try to negotiate drug prices, which they didn't, but if they did, they would be met with a wall of Republicans and Democrats who would say, no way. I take money from drug companies. I serve drug companies. We will keep those drug prices sky high. And then Joe Biden brags that he did, uh, negotiated drug prices on one drug out of tens of thousands. Congrats. Wow, at least you got up to do that. So now, when it comes to the housing prices, there, again, Biden, uh, back in 2020, said, oh, these young kids, they think they have it tough. That's malarkey. Uh, we had it much tougher. No, you didn't. That's not even remotely true, according to the facts. Student debt is now much higher than it was in Biden's time. Uh, it's, housing prices are infinitely higher than the 1800s when Biden was first uh, thinking of buying. I don't know what Biden's first house was. Was it worth $5, $25? It's a literal question. I know that it's not literally $25, but he probably bought a house for around $20,000, $25,000. That, that doesn't happen anymore. In the big cities, nobody can afford houses. Now coming straight out of Compton means you're a millionaire because that's what the houses in Compton are going for in LA. Okay, so this is, so how do you get a, a hold of it? You do real things that can help. First of all, private equity is swallowing up all the residential real estate in this country. You understand what happens if they do that? Number one, the number one way that American families build wealth is through their houses. If the private equity guys, Wall Street, buys up all the houses, then we can no longer build any wealth. And then they've got us, we're indentured servants forever because we have no wealth to fight back with, we have no house of our own, and then we have to pay them rent. So they just extract and extract and extract. So in, in cities like LA, New York, et cetera, they constantly talk about building more houses, uh, fighting homelessness, as, as Dean referred to, and then, what, and then they take a giant amount of money from us and they never fix the problem, why? They actually do dedicate a lot of money to real estate, but real estate is usually the number one donors in state politics. So what they do is they take the money and build luxury high-rises 
because those pay more. I get it. They get freaking profit. But don't do it with our money. If we're financing building houses, it should be affordable housing, and it should be for the average American. So we're getting robbed left and right from both the companies and the politicians. <coughs> you, you mentioned there uh, Wall Street. Actually, just earlier today, uh, Jeff Merkley and Adam Smith uh, introduced a bill that would ban Wall Street, um, like gobbling up of real estate. Uh, Marion, I want to go to you next. Is is should we be focusing mainly on big corporations' effect on the supply and hoarding housing, or is there something else that you think could have a bigger impact on housing affordability? Yeah, there's something else. Obviously, private equity is a, is a big part of this, but still, that's just talking about the symptoms, and we need to talk about the root cause. The root cause of all of this is the fact that the American economy is so rigged. You know, in the 1970s, the average American worker had decent benefits, could afford a house could afford a car, could afford a vacation, could afford for one parent to stay home with the kids if they wanted, the couple could, and they could afford to send their kids to college. Over the last few decades, there has been a $50 trillion transfer of wealth from the bottom 90% to the top 1%. So the housing crisis is like everything else. It is a malevolent strain of vulture capitalism that has its tentacles into every sector of American society. We need to cut the cord with that aberrational neoliberal trickle-down um, chapter of American history and begin again. We need an economic bill of rights. Remember, one of the reasons people can't afford a house is they can't afford anything. You know, there's a saying that Americans can't afford America. So why can't they afford a house? It's not just the prices of house, houses. It's everything else they have to pay for. That's why in an economic bill of rights, we have universal health care. It's not just negotiating with the pharmaceuticals. We should go on and have Medicare for all, universal health care. We should get rid of these college loan debt. We should have tuition-free college and tech school. We should have subsidized child care. We should have guaranteed sick pay. We should have guaranteed housing, which might include a domestic Marshall plan and a guaranteed living wage. This is not just about a higher minimum wage. We need a living wage. As long as we have an economy and so we are not addressing the fundamental fact that we are a government of the corporations, by the corporations, for the corporations, not just in housing, but in everything, and return to the fundamental, uh, to the fundamental commitment to a government of the people, by the people, and for the people, then even if you make it right on the symptom of housing, you're still going to have too much in fact, what is now ubiquitous human suffering in this country. Public policy should help people thrive. And in too many cases, in fact, in issue after issue after issue, our elected representatives pass laws that make it easier for those who already have capital to have access to more and make it harder for everyone else who is even struggling to get by. So it's really important that we see that about housing and about everything else. These are symptoms, and we need to address the underlying problem, and that's what the Democratic Party should stand for. That should be our counter-narrative to the Republicans in 2024, that they are, are, are a, a, a group of people at this point and a set of policies that stand only uh, for the very, very rich and for the corporate entities that they represent. The Democratic Party is sort of split right now, and uh, the left needs a spine. And we need to truly stand up for a complete fundamental economic reform, a fundamental economic U-turn, and a new beginning, economically and in every other way, uh, concerning justice, criminal justice, racial justice, economic justice in this country. Good ideas from Dean. Drug prices are ridiculous, and Jenk correctly connected the dots and took both parties to task. All those numbers Jenk dropped, check out, and if you have heard me speak on that issue, you know these things already. 
Marianne's assertions are correct as well. I grew up in the 80s, and a middle-class single-income family could survive and prosper back then. That is very much not the case anymore. The middle class has been hollowed out and pushed down the economic ladder. Jenk, uh, I want to go to you next. Um, these are big areas where people are worried about uh, affordability that drains money for people, for young people, especially throughout their life. Um, what can be done in these areas? So, uh, on healthcare, number one, uh, lowering drug prices is so incredibly simple. It's literally what every other country does. It's what every free market does. Hey, I, a company says I would like you to pay this. Well, that's not how it works. We're gonna we're gonna have the market set the prices based on competition. But in this country, because they we legalize bribery, they just come in and go, no, this is the price you'll pay, and we'll charge as much as we like. And every Democratic president and every Republican president says, yes, sir, absolutely, sir. Where's the money? Where do I clear my check? Let's be honest. Let's be honest about what's happening. So I, we, we could, any one of us could lower drug prices instantly because we're not taking money from drug companies. Problem solved. So that's point one. All right, point two is, look, we need to have universal health care in this country. Medicare for all is a perfectly great way to do it. Uh, every other developed nation has universal health care, the equivalent of Medicare for all. And none of them have sunk into the water, right? I mean, the guys like Louis Gohmert, who's a Republican congressman, uh, made insane claims about Obamacare and said that 20% of the women in this country would die if we had Obamacare. Bunch of lunatics. Did 20% of the women in the country die? No, they got better health care. So now Obamacare was a very mild approach. It's one tiny step towards universal health care. We need to get all the way to universal health care. If Estonia can afford it and every other developed nation on earth can afford it, how could we not be able to afford it? No, of course we can afford it. The only reason we don't have it it has nothing to do with health care. It has to do with the legalized bribes that almost all of these politicians take from those same drug companies and the health insurance companies. But now let me tell you about the bare minimum. Public option pulls it around 70%. Seven out of 10 Americans, including Republicans and definitely independents. They all say, well, at a minimum, I'd like an option of buying from the government my health insurance, just my health insurance, right? Because maybe it's a lower price. I like that idea. Again, something that a lot, almost every other developed nation does. Joe Biden says, oh, I'm in favor of public option. You know when he proposed it? Oh, right, never. So you tell me why he didn't propose it. Was he lying? I think he was. Maybe you have a more benign uh, view of Joe Biden. You think, no, Jake, don't be uh, harsh and don't be unfair. Maybe he's just incompetent and doesn't know how to introduce a bill, doesn't know how to get an ally to introduce it, doesn't know how to do a standalone bill and embarrass the Republicans by vote having them vote against their own voters. He couldn't get, not only couldn't he not get as something intensely popular done, he didn't even try. Wouldn't it be amazing to have a Democratic president that you didn't have to beg to do Democratic agenda? Every time a Democratic president wins, oh, now all of us have to get together and push them to do the right thing. Why? We already elected them. We did our part. Why do we have to constantly push them to do the thing that they promised? You, you won't have to push me. <laughs> no, I'll be the one doing the pushing. And so, yes, if you elect me, I'm going to fight like hell for the average American, and I don't give a damn what the insurance companies say or the drug companies say or what other corrupt politicians say. We're actually going to get affordable health care in this country. It is very doable the minute you fight corruption. Marianne, I want to go to you next. What do you think? Yeah, let's be very clear. The majority of Republicans as well as Democrats want universal health care. Not only that, people are waking up to the fact that 
it is afforded to the citizens of every other advanced democracy, and even some advanced democracies that are not democ uh, that are not democracies. So when people ask how we paying for it, right now we're paying for not having it with our lives. 68,000 Americans a year die of lack of health care. One in four Americans live with medical debt. That's a large part when you're talking about uh, housing prices or anything else, medical debt. So at this point, we, when you have 18 million Americans who can't even afford to pay for the prescriptions that their doctors give them, uh, when you have 85 million Americans uninsured or underinsured, we have to realize that the insurance companies, yes, it's not only the private equity, which is why people can't have houses, it's insurance companies, which is why people don't have health care, pharmaceutical companies, which is why Americans, over a million Americans are rationing their insulin. It's big food companies, which is why we have carcinogens in our food that they're not that are forbidden in other advanced democracies. It's chemical companies, which is why we have chemicals and pesticides that we know harm a child's brain. It's big agriculture and what it has done to our farming sectors. It's big oil, which is why we're, I don't care if they have a Democrat or Republican, including Joe Biden. They are ramping up fossil fuel extraction and not ramping it down, even though we know what a threat that is to the future habitability of this planet. And of course, it goes without saying that Democrats and Republicans fall in line with the military industrial complex. We have to get to this root cause, and that is this matrix of corporate overlords and their short-term profit maximization. The way Washington works right now, the short-term profits of these huge corporate entities, which are their donors, take precedence over the safety and the health and the well-being of the American people. People don't have health care, people can't afford to send their kids to college, they're saddled by college loan debts, they can't get, uh, they, they can't buy a house, because the system itself is such right now that these corporatist principles of corporate profits take precedence over democratic values, they take precedence over, over humanitarian values. That's what people have to realize, and that there's only one way to override this. There's only one way to cut the cord with that system of economic tyranny, and that is with a revolution at the ballot box. And Jeff was right at the beginning. We have to go about the business of letting the American people know that's why you should vote for one of us. You should vote for the Democrats. But I've got to tell you something. I don't think Joe Biden can make the argument that I just made because it's these incremental approaches all staying within the context of, in the final analysis, we're not going to do anything that upset that much our corporate donors. This is how fundamental the problem is and why the American people need to rise up. Only an intervention on the part of the people can change this now. Representative Phillips? I think we're all in agreement. Uh, we need national health insurance. Strangely enough, I think Richard Nixon may have been one of the more liberal presidents in my lifetime who proposed, who started the EPA and proposed universal health coverage. And who undermined it in the Senate? Ted Kennedy. Ted Kennedy, go figure. Anyway, we're all in agreement. Uh, you know, I, I represent United Health Group in my district. Uh, I chaired the board of the largest health system in Minnesota, uh, Lina. I spent a lot of time on this subject. There's no question. We need a national health insurance program quickly. 66% uh, of all uh, bankruptcies in the United States of America are due to medical debt. We spend $12,000 per capita, which is double that of any developed nation in the world, and our outcomes are mid-pack. And as Cenk was saying about pharmaceutical pricing, Marianne, you agreed? Yeah, they spend $300 million a year enriching the campaign coffers of my colleagues in Congress. Of course, they want to maintain the status quo. 
And it's so easy. There should not be a single pharmaceutical sold in the United States of America for one penny higher than is sold in Canada, Mexico, France, Germany, Spain, or Japan. Simple. But the biggest issue I have to tell you guys is the system. We don't have health care. We have sick care. And that means we pay for sickness. We pay for procedures. We've got to start investing in health. And my goodness, we live in a society as human beings in which incentives matter. So we should be providing incentives to the healthcare providers to keep people sick out of the hospital, to keep them from being sick. And it's not rocket science, but to your point, we have massively successful industries, both the pharmaceutical industry and the health insurance industry. And let me tell you, I spent a lot of time with my Republican constituents in Minnesota. They are just as disgusted with health insurers and the pharma business as anybody. Uh, there is a way to get this done. If Richard Nixon could have proposed it and a Democrat undermined him, I think we should be working together right now and get it done. And by the way, there is more than enough money in that system where we could actually reduce the comprehensive cost of care and have it consume less than the 18% of our total economy than it does right now. It's, a, it's an absolute, absolute. Healthcare is a big one. I don't necessarily agree with all their ideas, but their outrage at the current administration is absolutely righteous. It is often said that medical expenses are the number one cause of bankruptcy filings in the United States, but that is not true. It is number two, though. That should make it very clear we have a real problem in America. Is single-payer the answer? I don't necessarily think so, but I would expect most of us would at least agree that what we have now is not working. Well, it's not working for you and I, regular people. It is working very well for the insurance and pharmaceutical companies and any other industries and individuals profiting off the medical industry. I won't even bother researching that, because there's no way the insurance companies would be donating $83 million to politicians of both parties if they weren't getting a return on their investment. They do risk analysis for a living for crying out loud. Transgender issues were brought up frequently in the Republican debate, with only Chris Christie taking the stance that government had no place in that, erring on the side of parents' rights. He was in stark contrast to the other three candidates on the stage that night, and these three candidates were dumbfounded at the spectacle they witnessed from the opposing party. Casino, Chris Christie uh, was alone on, on that particular issue, and he tried to couch it as a parents' rights issue. Um, but it did come up very often, uh, the, the larger issue around the LGBTQ community, with both uh, Ron DeSantis and Haley uh, unprompted me mentioning the topic in their first response, uh, first questions they were asked, which were not about that topic, and then both of them in their first response to each other talking about it. Vivek Ramaswamy, amongst a long line of the conspiracy theories that he supports, he was machine gunning through them, uh, talked about how he thinks that being transgender is a mental health disorder, and uh, Nikki Haley called uh, trans athlete participation in sports the women's issue of our time. So clearly this is something that they are very hyper-focused on. Uh, I want to give you an opportunity, Representative Phillips, uh, to respond to this topic. Well, first, one of the first statements I heard from Nikki Haley is accusing Ron DeSantis of his don't say gay bill of not going far enough. Mm -hmm. That's Nikki Haley saying this. You guys, I, I got to tell you, I just don't get it. I wish I did. I don't understand the lack of compassion, uh, the lack of love, the lack of understanding, the lack of basic human decency, and the fact you have candidates on the GOP right now who are fighting harder and harder to be more mean-spirited than the other. I just don't get it. It's appalling. I'm the father of a daughter who's gay. She's extraordinary. I don't know I don't know why in the United States of America we have not moved beyond this, and I'm glad as Democrats that we lead with love and compassion 
I will. I want to salute one Republican. I think Spencer Cox, the governor of Utah, as it relates to trans uh, rights, as to trans uh, young kids per, uh, playing in sports and whatnot. I think I think he's doing it better than most, and I think we should pay attention to those who are actually leading with some principle. But what a sad state of affairs tonight. I can't imagine being a, a trans person, a, a, a gay person, a queer person watching that GOP t debate tonight. I, I cannot imagine what that must like feel like in the 21st century in the United States of America to see the Republican Party uh, fight to the bottom of such basic human decency issues. And I got to tell you another thing when it comes to rights, by the way, I, I'm going to point out the truth when I see it. Remember when President Obama and Vice President Biden had the White House and the House and the Senate for four months and they were elected and we didn't codify women's reproductive rights into law? These are the mistakes that Democrats have been making for far too damn long, far too long. And look at the consequences. This is a party, by the way, the GOP, that says they're for freedom and liberty. And my goodness, every chance they get, they want to take it away from people. And why they think government should be involved in a woman's body, why they think a man, for goodness sake, should even have anything to do with it. Wow. That's why I know we'll all agree on this uh, Zoom tonight. Why we are not absolutely destroying Donald Trump in a national election is just astounding astounding after the display I saw on that stage tonight. Anyway, that's why I'm proud to be a Democrat, but boy, do we have to take up our game, and most of all, we got to win. And to bear in mind also that Donald Trump has now announced that he is going to be trying to run as a, a moderate on the topic of abortion, which you referenced there. We'll see about that, but but Jenk, I do want to give you an opportunity to respond to the topic. Yeah. First of all, Donald Trump's a guy who uh, cost us Roe v. Wade, so the idea that he'd be a moderate on abortion is absurd. And he's only doing that because he's a slimy con man. Uh, after he uh, destroys women's rights to choose, now he's going to pretend that he's a moderate on that issue. But the problem with Democrats a lot of times, like Joe Biden, is that they never fight back. So and Joe Biden should be out there pummeling Donald Trump on costing women the right to choose. But I haven't heard one word. I haven't heard one word in that regard. Oh, he starts every speech with my Republican friends. Sorry, but uh, I, I don't have Republican friends. So it's not to say that we're not going to deliver for Republican voters. We are. When we raise wages, their wages are going to go up. When we lower truck prices, their truck prices are going to go down. But when you talk about Republican politicians, sorry, I'm not with these guys. So we showed you right there, John showed you Chris Christie's good answer, and it was a good answer. And as a parent, no, I don't want the government or Republican politicians deciding what to do with my kids. Hell no. No way under no circumstances. But the other three had horrific, barbaric answers. And they were all talking about, like, oh, well, I banned people from, uh, trans people from bathrooms. Oh, no, I banned them more. I banned them more. I hate them more. Look, you're the party of hate. Let's be honest about it. So it, do most Americans agree with them? No. In, in, in fact, on that uh, bathroom bill, over two-thirds of Americans were on the side of transgender rights. They do the great, overwhelming majority of the country does not agree with the Republican hate mongers. But yet, the Democrats don't seem to be able to fight back effectively, or sometimes at all. So we've got to change that dynamic. Have you ever seen Joe Biden this animated about this issue? Or even any issue? Or even taking on Republicans? So look at Vivek Ramaswamy, or Ramaslimy, to calling uh, being transgender a uh, mental health disorder. Brother, you got a mental health disorder. And, and that disorder is not being able to tell the truth. You are the most 
fake, plastic, inauthentic person I have ever seen. Oh, Donald Trump uh, was wrong about the election. Oh, I'm running, and I want to kiss Donald Trump's ass. Oh, Donald Trump's right about everything. Then why are you running against them? Okay, look, you've seen me say harsh things about Joe Biden. You know why? I'm in a race against him. I think he's going to lose to Donald Trump. I'm positive. So we need someone else to run against Donald Trump. Vivek Ramaswamy doesn't look like he's in the race against Donald Trump at all. He looks like he's in the race to help Donald Trump. And by pushing hateful agendas like that, unfortunately, he is. The panel then weighed in on some of the issues that were notably absent from the Republican debate. What do you think was worthy of discussion? Yeah, so this is exactly why we should have democratic debates because if the average american watched just the republican debate tonight they would probably think oh my god i guess the country hates gay people and trans people and uh wants to invade china and mexico and gaza and 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 they would have never heard the democratic side so here we've uh, the points that we have made are so diametrically opposed to the points that, that, that the republicans have made and by having this forum, we're at least getting that message out, which is exactly what we need to do. We invite Joe Biden to do it with us. So now in terms of those issues, look, paid family leave, uh, you're a little wrong, John. It's not uh, above 70%. Well, it is above 70%, but it's not in that ballpark. It's at 84%. 84%. So Estonia has 82 weeks off for moms who have babies. We have zero days off, zero by law. We're the only nation, only not only only developed nation, almost the only nation on earth that doesn't have any paid family leave. And do you ever see the Republicans talking about that? No, because they serve corporate donors. And so why would do you know that seventy-four percent of Republican voters want paid family leave? Why? Yeah, they want moms to be able to have a baby and then they take twelve weeks off, or dads if the situation is appropriate. But we never discuss any of those issues. Instead, we talk about the maniacal issues that the Republicans bring up because they're the only ones having debates. And they're the only ones that are bringing up issues. We should be bringing up paid family leave. And then I've got to ask Joe Biden, my God, man, if you can't get a bill passed that's at 84% popularity, what can you get passed? What? I mean, why don't you introduce it as a simple issue bill in the Senate and embarrass and force the Republicans to vote against three quarters of their own voters? But we get none of that. Always Democratic apathy and Republican aggression. It's time that we fought back. So I don't have time to go through the whole list that John said. I want to give the others time. But I, <laughs> let's take the issue of climate change. Guys, we're running out of time. And these lunatics are talking about we're not giving the oil companies enough. The big Ramaswamy on the one hand says, oh, I'm against corruption. On the other hand, he says, no, we should let the oil companies take even more oil out and profit from it. And then when they have the cost of climate change, we should pay the taxpayers should pay. Why don't they pay it? That's an externality of their business. That is a cost of their business. They should pay for it. Every time there's this extreme hurricane or tornado or whatever it might be caused by climate change, we should send the bill to ExxonMobil. And why are we giving $20 billion in subsidies to these companies? And one last thing here that is so, so important when it comes to uh, climate change and oil prices. They have to stop lying about this in the Republican debates and sometimes in mainstream media. Our drilling, extra drilling, does not affect global gas prices. It is an international market. It's a, what we do is a drop in the bucket. And when we drill, it doesn't make us any more energy independent. We, the American citizens, don't get that oil. The corporations get the oil 
and they can sell it anywhere in the world, and they do. It doesn't stay in America. It's one mythology after another. And finally, guys, I want you to think about this. The last uh, month of the election, what if gas prices go up? Who's going to be blamed? The incumbent in charge is going to be blamed. Who is the one country that actually can affect oil prices worldwide? Saudi Arabia, because they control OPEC. And OPEC is large enough to move global oil prices. Who does Saudi Arabia love in America more than any other politician? Donald J. Trump. What mm -hmm. if the Saudis increase gas prices right before the election? <coughs> We're toast. We're toast. If the candidate is the incumbent president sitting at 37% favorability, and they move gas prices up right before the election, that guarantees Donald Trump a win. We cannot risk that. We cannot have this incumbent uh, run this uh, race. It is a it, we're, we're allowing ourselves to lose on purpose. I've never seen anything like it in my life. Oh, jank. Don't tickle my conspiracy bones, sir. An oily October surprise? Interesting. I hadn't considered that, but now that you bring it up, that would do exactly what you suggest, and they would be fools not to do it. I feel your frustration, though. You're not wrong. Watching it from the outside, it looks exactly the same to me as it does to you. Is it incompetence, or is it on purpose? Marianne, I want to go to you next. Uh, which issue absence uh, stood up the most to you? Well, I want to say something about what Jack and Dean were just saying. I think we're all in agreement that the, you know, we must not have Donald Trump back in the White House. But I don't think the biggest electoral risk for us as Democrats is Donald Trump. People are going to vote for Donald Trump. They love Donald Trump. You could indict him 91 more times, and they'll still vote for him. They vote for him in prison. I don't think that our risk is so much Donald Trump as it is the risk of people staying home, millions of people staying home. And if we don't offer them anything more, then they just might, particularly when it comes to young people and the environment. Uh, this president, President Biden, okayed the Willow Project, the $8 billion, uh, $8 billion ConocoPhillips oil extraction program project on the north slopes of, of Alaska, and he gave more oil drilling permits even than Trump did. So until we start offering policies. You were talking about paid family leave, and I, I certainly have that as part of my economic bill of rights. But the issue of paid family leave is not only just for the parents, it's for the child. It, one of the things I want to do is, is establish the Department of Children and Youth. If we want the country that we could be in 20 years. We must start paying more attention to children 10 years and younger now. We know things about early childhood. That's when it all happens. 90% of a child's brain is developed in the first five years. So that's a large part of paid family leave. We have children who are traumatized in this country before preschool. We have elementary school students on suicide watch. In uh, schools all over this country, we have trauma rooms. Why should childhood be such a trauma for millions of people, children in this country? We have millions of, of children in this country who go to schools where they don't even have the adequate school supplies to teach a child to read. And if a child cannot learn to read by the age of 10, the chances of high school graduation are drastically reduced and the chances of, of uh, incarceration are drastically increased. This is how we're going to win in 2024 allow people to imagine a much better country not just not them but what we could create what we could create for our children what we could create for our families what we could create for our communities what we could create for our health like dean was saying it, it, this is not just a matter of treating health we must create proactively a more healthy society 
For that, we must take on the food companies. We must take on the chemical companies. We must take on the environmental issues. 46% of all urban wells in the United States are filled with PFAS. So as long as we have the carcinogens in our food, as long as we have the toxins in our air, as long as we have the forever chemicals in our water, that's what I want to do. I want to picture for the American people that it could all be so much better. We're going to have to repudiate corporate dominance and we're going to have to start again. And uh, that's what the Democrats should stand for. And if we do, we will win in 2024, because of course people just want a better life. Representative Phelps? Well, there's so much. Childcare, early childhood education, my goodness. The fact that they didn't spend more time or any time talking about the need for a legitimate mental and emotional health care system in the United States that would address so many of the challenges from cradle to grave. Uh, the fact that they didn't talk about Social Security, which is literally going to start trimming benefits by 25% within 10 years if we don't address it. By the way, we should raise the cap to $250,000. I'd like to see a pool created so that those who have been successful can return their Social Security benefits to a pool that would be redistributed to the lowest, perhaps 10% of recipients, many of whom literally are having to make sandwiches at night and eat cereal because they just don't have enough money at the end of the month. It's just abhorrent. There's so much that needed to be talked about tonight that wasn't. Um, we talked about gun violence, of course, we talked about. Everything that young people are coming to all of us to talk about, gun violence, climate change. No mention, I don't think, of the AI revolution that is forthcoming, a country that is so woefully ill-prepared for both the blessings and the curses. And I'll tell you what I think needs to be talked about more than anything else, because no matter what policies we stand for, which we, what we want to achieve, if we don't start focusing on national repair, literally repair, we have a dysfunctional Congress. Uh, we have a disaster brewing around this country uh, and no peace around the world. And if we don't bring peace to the world and to our country and don't unify behind that and frankly make invitations, not confrontations, but invitations to Donald Trump supporters, as both of you have mentioned tonight, have the same challenges, the same needs, the same anger that many of us have about a system that is absolutely destroying many of the facets of the country that are so dear to us. So we've got a lot of work to do. The fact is, I love what you said, Cenk, about the fact that absent the President of the United States consenting to at least a couple of debates, we are literally giving free airtime to the very party that is going to seize back the White House and completely destroy democracy. So you know what? I was asked yesterday if I thought President Biden was a risk to democracy. And I said, yes, he is, because he's running in a race in which he's going to lose to the most dangerous man in history. He's not consenting to debates, handing the literally every screen in America to millions of people watching every day. He's allowing the Florida Democratic Party and the North Carolina Democratic Party to literally make a decision for probably 10 million Americans that they don't need to vote. We'll make the decision for you and simply hand his uh, delegates to him and not even allow our voters to go to the polls. And then, of course, in New Hampshire. I mean, it's appalling. He took the yeah. first in the nation primary away, told them their votes won't matter, and now is trying desperately to do a write-in campaign and have, along with a super PAC up here to do it. You know, the dirty truth is we've got a massive disaster in both parties right now. Uh, I was part of it. I enabled it. I had no idea until I joined both of you in this endeavor. And I think that's the most important part of this so far is to speak truth to power, to say the quiet part out loud. And my goodness, watching that GOP debate tonight uh, was horrifying.
and to watch the only person in the room who tried to play the role of an adult, that was Chris Christie. He was the guy that was doing debate prep, for God's sakes, with Donald Trump just a couple years ago. So give me a damn break, you know what I mean? Give me a break. And Nikki Haley, who's now the number two closest, you know, her hand went up right away when they asked him last time in the debate stage if you'd still vote for Donald Trump, even if he's convicted. Even if he's convicted. My goodness, folks. I'm glad to be on this with all of you because uh, we still have some principle left in politics. And now we need the platform to ensure the country sees it. And right now the president is working against it. More painful but correct indictments of Joe Biden's policies and mentions of issues that are noticeably absent from the other side's debates. This. This is why we need more voices in the conversation. The more ideas out there, the better chance we have to hear them, contrast them, weigh them on the merits, and pick the best and hopefully improve the state of our country. National repair is nothing less than that. Indeed, President Biden is working against you all and the American people and delivering us to potentially Donald Trump. It's mind-boggling. The candidates were then asked about the people that inspire them, similar to the end of the Republican debate. I'll skip over that and wrap up. If you want to see the discussion in its entirety, the link to the YouTube is in the description. This is a really weird election cycle. The way both parties seem to have foregone candidates, Donald Trump forcing himself on the Republicans, grabbing them by the primaries, and Joe Biden refusing to get up out of his barca lounger with the complicity of the Democratic leadership is terrible. At least on the GOP side, they have some semblance of entertaining options, but the Democrats have already handcuffed themselves to a loser, suppressing other options rather than trying to win. It's great that we finally get a chance to hear these three speak at length, and I hope they're able to get traction and unseat the doddering old man swinging from the party's neck like a limp, cursed albatross. There is still time to turn this bad reboot into an exciting election. That's it for today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed the podcast, please take the time to leave a comment here and on Podchaser. It helps us know how we're doing and what topics you'd like to hear in the future. Have a great day.